All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. All right, so here, uh, Pastor Jason asked me to remind you, just in case you've forgotten, to take the friendship book and pass it. That'd be awesome. So as, as we're talking about the burden of uh, 79, we have to also talk about um, ways that, that in 2018, the church is actually trying to flesh out that mission. And uh, just right before we get into our sermon, um, one ministry that's really knocking it out of the park is Mom's Connection. And Mom's Connection is this ministry to moms of preschoolers here at the church. And their whole goal is to try to help these moms many of whom, this is their first rodeo. This is their first child. They're kind of like in over their head. This is like a lot. This is a lot of pressure trying to figure out how to pull this all off. And in the midst of it, they get a chance to have two hours to be ministered to while their kids are being cared for by someone else. And the, the, this year, the success of it is that we have like 50-something uh, moms that, that are actually plugged into this ministry. Uh, a lot of them are from this church, but a lot of them are from our community that are, don't go here. And so it's been a, a great ministry to them, but there's a problem. It's too successful. There's too many moms, and there's too many moms saying that they need help with this. And, and it's not that we don't have the space for the moms. We've got plenty of space for the moms and plenty of resources for that, but we don't have enough leaders, enough volunteers that are taking care of their kids so that these moms can have a two-hour break where they can be ministered to. And, and that's a problem. Right now, we are having to tell 10 to 15 moms, no, you can't come because we can't properly care for your kids if, if you came with them. And that, that breaks my heart. And so what I want everyone to do is this. If everyone could just hold up your hand so I can see your piggies. Let's see all the piggies. All right. Okay, good, good, good. All right. This is how many I need. Okay. I need five people. You could put your hand down, Brad. Thank you. I need five people. The, over the course of this weekend, we'll have a thousand people here. I don't need a thousand. I just need five. I need five people who on the second and fourth Wednesday of every month can give two hours in the morning from nine o'clock to 11 o'clock. So if you're at home or, or free and available between nine o'clock and 11 o'clock on two Wednesdays in the, in the month, you could actually make it possible that we could reach more moms that are in our community. And that would be massively awesome. And so here's the thing. If you could just go ahead and if you've got photographic memory, great. Otherwise, you could feel free to take a picture or you could look in your program because that those um, Ashley and Katie's number are in the program. But go ahead and I want you to text them this morning during the service saying, I'm in. And then let them know who you are. Otherwise, it will be fruitless. So let them know that you're, you're in or you could uh, email them at nbcmomconnection.com. Uh, at gmail.com and just do that during the service because I would love to walk out of this weekend with how many? That's right, five people. It'd be amazing. Out of a thousand, I think we could pull that off, but we're going to need 11 o'clock service to, to come in and like super, super step into that if you can. Please do. All right, we are in a series um, where we're calling it the Burden of 79, talking about how back in 1979, there were these two guys, this farmer and this home builder that decided that God was really recognized that God wanted them to do something in Manuka, that he wanted to plant a church. These guys weren't pastors. They weren't professionals. They just were a farmer and a home builder, but they they felt like God wanted to do something here in this town for the, for the glory of God and the good of everyone else. And so they took this massive faith step. And one of the things that they did was they had to figure out what do we believe? What are we going to revolve ourselves around as a church? And so they developed up articles of faith that we've worked on over the years. And that's what we're teaching through as we're going through the burden of 79, realizing that we don't just make beliefs, our beliefs make us. And so we're, we're, we're going through that and this week, we're, go we're talking through the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of people. Like, why people? Like, seriously, why? Why people? My comrade um, and compadre in ministry, Pastor Carlos, uh, says that, you know, ministry would be so easy if it weren't for the people. 
But let's extrapolate that out just a little bit. I mean, your job, your job would be so easy. If it weren't for the people, your family, awesomely easy, no drama. If it weren't for the people. And if, you, if you're like, yes, I can totally identify people who are problems in my life. And if you can't, the person that's a problem in your life is you. You are the person that other people are thinking about as I'm saying this. People are the problem. And it's like, why, when did this happen? Why is this here? Under whose administration did this surface? How long has this been going on? And the truth is that we've had a people problem since the beginning. Every epoch, every era, every generation has had a struggle with people. People have been problematic. And the world gets that. We know that people are the problem, but we don't know why. And we don't know what to do about it. But Scripture does. And Vernon Johnson and Dick Seavers, they they were able to to come together and and realize we need to answer this question, why people? And so if you've got your your, uh, booklet, you can go ahead and open it up to page 14. Uh, If you don't have one of these booklets, I want to encourage you, after the service, go over to the guest hub. They have them right out in front of the guest hub. We're selling them for three bucks. If you don't have three bucks, just take one and run fast. The ushers aren't fast enough to catch up with you. I promise, just book it. You'll be fine. But I just want to make sure that you've got one of these as we're going through. And it gives you a reading plan to go through why do we believe these things during the week. So it's not just, I believe it because Errol said it, but you believe it because it's in God's word. Okay, so we're actually going to step into this, but let's go ahead and read through our articles of faith, which answer that question, why people? This is what we believe. We believe that Adam and Eve were directly and immediately created by God in his image and likeness, free from sin, with the intent that they should glorify God, enjoy God's fellowship, live in God's will, and by this, accomplish God's purpose in the world. Through Adam's sin of disobedience, humanity lost its innocence, incurred the penalty of physical and spiritual death, and became subject to God's wrath and became corrupt. Humanity is thus hopelessly lost apart from salvation through the redemption, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so as, as we're asking the question, why people, we have to figure out, if we're sourcing what we believe off of Scripture, what does the Bible say, who does the Bible say we are? And the Bible says this. The Bible actually speaks into that. It says that, honestly, we are more amazing than we could ever imagine. Simply because of the fact that we were created in God's image. That that actually is our value. Our value isn't anything, on t- this whole section here, we believe that Adam and Eve were directly and immediately created by God in his image and likeness. See, when we look at what, how we value ourselves, like in our world, we actually have a, a couple other ways to, to assess that, to tabulate out our personal value. It basically boils down to the, these things, talent, looks, cash, relational status, or power. However much you're winning in this area, how much ever you're knocking it out of the park in these, these areas means your personal value. For example, like if you're someone who's got talent, all throughout, and this is not just 2018, all throughout time, talent actually breeds success. Looks, and whether, whatever the society says is attractive, if you fall into that, if you were given like the gift from the, the jeans, Santa, and you're like, boom, not, you're like, just, you're like, I, just, I don't even do anything. It just, that's awesome. Then you're, you're going to be someone that actually has more personal value or your skin color in different generations. And depending on where you live and, and what generation you live, your skin color, your appearance will actually give you currency of personal value. Your relational status, are you married or not? 
oftentimes it's very easy culturally to put on people who are not married some type of a shame or guilt. Like, you know what? You're, you're a great person, wonderful personality. You're just not complete yet. Your personal value is lowered because of the fact that, that you are single. Or if you're divorced, well, you're, you're, you've, got, you've been branded now. So like just, just carry that with you for the rest of your life. And these things are either things that we add up our personal value or we actually diminish our personal value by them. And here's the reality check that we all need to realize that every single person in this room, if you're north of seven years old, even maybe even younger, but every, certainly every person that's seven years old or older has assessed their own value and considered themselves less than worthy of love because of one or more of the things on this list. Isn't that true? Every single one of us has. We've all said, if only I, if only I was, in my family line, I am not the talented one. Or in my friend group, or I just, I'm, I'm the one that doesn't have as, as, as the appearance that is as presentable as this person. I just wish, if I only had a little bit more of that, or a little bit less of this, then people would find me attractive. If, if only, I mean, seriously, my problem is the financial side of things. If only that was corrected, I, I would have way less stress and things would be complete. If only I had a relationship, then people wouldn't look at me as, my mom wouldn't look at me as someone who needs to be fixed or fixed up with someone. If only I had power, if I had some influence, then, then things would be different. That is what we are conditioned from age zero, what makes us valuable as a person. To which scripture says, nah, nope, not on God's watch. See, in scripture, we see another accounting. What equals personal value in scripture is simply that you are made in God's image. Genesis 1.26 says that. That means you can't add to your value. You can add, these are all circumstances that make people feel good or bad about themselves. Sure, whatever. But your, your value is not diminished or added because of any of these things. It's not like I was created in the image of the creator of DNA and, and who came up with the physics that caused the entire universe to expand. And, and, and he's the one who invented photosynthesis and the central nervous system. And on top of all that, I'm attractive. No, you can't add to that. It's like, it's ridiculous. Your personal value and every single person you come in contact with, their personal value has nothing to do with that left side list. That left side list are descriptors. They're not value statements. So the first thing we need to realize is that we are in fact more amazing than we could possibly imagine. But that's not the full story because scripture also points out our problem. We are worse than we know or admit. Yes, you are more amazing than you could possibly imagine or give yourself credit for. You're created in the image of God. However, because of sin, we are worse than we know or admit. Through Adam's sin of disobedience, humanity lost its innocence, incurred the penalty of physical and spiritual death. Let's just pause there for a second. All of us know that we die. We, we know that, that we have an expiration. Because sin has entered into the toxic, entered toxicity into the bloodstream, of, of creation, we, will all, we all have an expiration date. We all will die. We get that. But the second part is a little bit more ambiguous. Spiritual death is actually speaking into the fact that, I don't know if you, if you can remember like just an awful breakup with someone, that it was just like, it wasn't just like, we're just friends. I agree. And you go along your merry way, but actually it was bad, like, like bombastically bad, like catastrophic, like whether it was a divorce or you were 17, I don't know, but it was bad. 
because, and you're like, I can't believe that he said that or she said that. I feel so wrong because of what they did. I'll never be able to get over this. That feeling, now take that on a cosmic level because that's what took place between God who is perfect. It's not just you and some other broken human being. It's a holy God and you. And that break in relationship was relational. There's a spiritual death that's taken place. You're dead to each other and became subject to God's wrath and became corrupt. Humanity is thus hopelessly lost, which of course brings us to John Calvin. John Calvin was a 16th century reformer and theologian. Actually, let's not have John Calvin up there all by himself. John Calvin and Blink-182, an aging 21st century punk band. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't know if any of you were fans back in the day of Blink, but they're going to be key in our conversation with John Calvin. John Calvin opens up his Institutes of the, of the Christian Religion with this amazing line about human wisdom. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. So if, if you want to be wise, it boils down to two things. You got to know who God is and you got to know yourself. If you want to really know yourself, you can't completely know yourself without knowing God. If you really want to know God, you can't truly know God without having a good assessment of yourself. And that is something that Blink actually took into heart. I mean, they said, absolutely, John Calvin, we agree. Because when Blink was making, when they were, when they were killing it, it was at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And Blink... Um, I don't know if you, again, were a fan or not, but the music is incredibly catchy, and it feels like summer just listening to it. But it basically revolved around three subject matters, um, partying, the joy of irresponsibility, and directionless relationships. Those three things were Blink's bread and butter, and they, they made a killing on it. They were global off of it. And then um, all of a sudden, now it's 20 years later, and they did what... But, punk bands and rock bands do 20 years after their greatest success. They come out with another album because they've run out of money. So here's the thing. They come out with uh, California, and California shows the effects of 20 years of maturity as far as the, the music. The music on this album is awesome. I mean, it's, it's really, really like the musicality. You can see that there's growth in each one of the band members. They swapped out one band member, and, and there's, they're actually they're a tighter band. It sounds so good. But the lyrics actually are far more reflective of their 20-year-old self rather than their 40 to 45-year-old self. It's almost like they were saying, yeah, John Calvin, we get it. We know ourselves. Blink-182, we revolve around these three subject matters. So we're going to write about the same three subject matters just as 40-year-olds. What's the problem with that? The problem is, is that they forgot John Calvin. See, John Calvin actually wanted to communicate this. That wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, which doesn't say know yourself and rock whatever you are forever. It's the knowledge of yourself is intended to drive you deeper into a reality check. Whoa, I'm really that messed up. Whoa, I was all about affirming this when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old, and I see the gravity and the brokenness of that decision is the effect of the... So, so knowing yourself more actually pushes you deeper into going what Jeremiah 17 says. That the heart, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can figure it out? It's like the more I know myself, the more I realize, man, my heart is broken and messed up. I try to like use this as a barometer for my decisions and it, it sends me off in the wrong directions time and time again. Which brings us to another aging 21st century punk... punk uh, pop band, Newfound Glory. Anyone remember Newfound Glory? Okay, 
three of us. All right, Newfound Glory uh, was actually rocking the same scene, the same punk scene when Blink was at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And they, like Blink, rocked the same three subject matters. Partying, the joy of irresponsibility, and directionless relationships, and made their bread and butter that way. And like Blink, 20 years later, decide we have run out of money, so let's make a new album. Unlike Blink, unlike Blink, they actually had showcased not only an evolution in their musicality and a growth in their ability to produce songs, but the lyrical content borderlines on preachy. Because yeah, I know. You now have 40-somethings who are not 21, who are now saying, uh-oh, we made some mistakes. And they actually had the authenticity to write about it in their lyrics. During one of my favorite songs on this album, it's a little bit more of a reggae-influenced uh, punk song, and it's, it's called The Sound of Two Voices, talking about these two voices that are in our ear, in our head, nonstop. The, the voice is saying to do the right thing, and the voice is telling us to do the wrong. And listen to the lyrics, and as they reflect Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In this song, it says, I must be honest. Under the surface, it grinds like a blender, the sound of two voices. My heart seems to fail me. It put me in a stranger's bed. It hurt who I love the most. I'll never trust it again. And that gets to the chorus. And that's why I don't want what I want. Because what I want, it just might kill me. And I won't think of my needs because what I need is never enough for me. The lead singer of the band said that he wrote this after going to a show where the opening band of one of his, his friend's uh, band was saying, hey, just go out, do whatever you want. Like, just go and be happy, do whatever you want, follow your heart, have a beer. And like the lead singer of Newfound Glory sat next to his buddy who's a recovering alcoholic and said, I used to listen to that and believe that. But if I did that, that would, that would screw up my whole life. If I'm just following my heart and doing whatever I want, I'm gonna blow up my life. And so then they wrote this. And it talks about later on in the song that I've made decisions that have caused stains that bleach will not erase. You think you're so inspiring? Putting a quote up against a picture and posting it, saying do whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy, if that's the same thing, that will destroy me. Because that's why I don't want what I want. Because what I want, it just might kill me. And I won't think of my needs. Because what I need is never enough for me. Newfound Glory agrees with Calvin on the fact that, to be honest, in spite of the fact that we are created amazing, we have a major problem with sin. We are worse than we know or admit. And if I left you with that, if that's all we came out of here with, that'd be a bummer of a sermon. It would actually be super anti-biblical because the, the scripture showcases the gospel, which is a full view of how awesome we were created, how horrible we've become because of sin, and yet in the midst of that horrible reality that we are currently in, we actually have an ability to step into something where we have hope. This is what it says. Humanity is thus hopelessly lost, but notice that we did not put a period at the end of the sentence there. Humanity is thus hopelessly lost apart from, apart from the salvation through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we have more hope than we could ever manufacture. That is our reality. Um, I love this quote from uh, Tim Keller. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, 
We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You have that. That's, 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 what, that's the doctrine of humanity, the why people of Scripture. So how do we actually step into the burden of 79? The, the, again, the burden of these two guys who said, we want a church that believes what Scripture says and then lives that out in everyday life. How do we step into the burden? Well, first off, and if you've got your notes, or even if you don't, I want to encourage you just to go ahead and draw an eyeball. This is a drawing class right now. This is not about the Illuminati, okay? But the, the eyeball is just this, because if you're going to change how you treat people, it's going to be having to stem out of the fact of how you see people. You have to see people biblically and differently. And that starts with seeing yourself differently. So first off, humbly see the problem in you and the promise in Christ. Humbly see the problem in you. In humility, be open to that. Don't be defensive. Humbly see the problem in you and the promise that's in Christ. Um, Paul, and if you've got your Bibles, please open them to Galatians chapter 2, because Paul and this passage is talking through this, this, this thing that was going on. See, you've got all these people in this rich heritage of, of faith and Judaism. And they've got like the Ten Commandments. They've got all the laws. They've got the entire prophets and, and all the poets and all the, everything from the Old Testament. They are established. And many of them are like, look, we got the law. We circumcise our kids. Nobody's doing that, but we are. And we got this tribe that's all about this. And boom, we are totally, it's us and them. And then Jesus comes and says, yes, it's us, and now it's all for them. To the uncircumcised, to the Gentile pagans, this message of the gospel goes out to, to every one of them. And that was really cool for Paul. It was a massive 180 for his life. But a lot of the Jews who are becoming Christians are like, I'm having a hard time with the fact this message is going out to them. And he says, you have to see people differently. But it starts with how you see yourself. We're actually going to be working our way backwards in chapter 2, starting with this verse, in verse, start with chapter 2, verse 15 and following. He says this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews ourselves also are among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For, though the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for, for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me, and he gave himself up for me. In other words, you want to know where the problem is? It's right here. Like, I've got serious issues. I've got, I've got an addiction to sin. The problem is here. But I realize that in Christ, I have died to that. And now I'm following his lead. And for some of us, we really feel sketchy about that because we go, man, if I, if I really, really died to some of the things in my life that are sinful, that's going to diminish me. Like, people know me for this. People know how I talk. They know that I talk like this, and I think like this, and I do this. And if I, because I know these things a lot, there's a lot of sin in there. If, if I actually reduce that or cut that out, if I realize that the problem in my life is my own making, and I, I actually traded that out with following Christ, I wouldn't be me. People wouldn't know me for me, and I, I feel like I'd be a different person. I feel like I would be diminished. 
But the truth is that Scripture proclaims a different message. The most you you can be is the you defined by Christ. The most you you can be is the you defined by Christ. The most Matt that Matt can be back there is the Matt, not the the Matt that thinks and talks like Matt has, but the Matt who thinks and talks like Jesus. Okay, the most Tracy that Tracy can be is the Tracy who follows Jesus and responds to life like Jesus would. That's not diminishing Tracy. That's not diminishing Matt. It's actually making them more the person. See, Jesus' goal is not to make you more angelic and less human. His goal is to make you as human as you possibly could be and you were created to be. And that human, that human looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, responds to enemies like Jesus. The most you you could be is the you defined by Christ. So humbly see the person, the problem in you, pardon me, and the promise in Christ. Secondly, gracefully see other people like the Heavenly Father does. See, again, Paul is talking here about the fact that a lot of his, his Jew, Jewish brothers who've accepted Jesus were having a real difficult time accepting the Gentiles, these uncircumcised people. And Paul's like, hello, like, were you not paying attention when Jesus said this was for everybody? If you look at verse six, chapter two, verse six and following, it says this. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. He's saying, look, people have given me props. And they're like, yeah, Paul, you're the apostle. You're an awesome guy. You know what? That means nothing to me. You know why? Because I'm not living by the left-handed list as my, my value. God does not show favoritism. He jumps down and he talks about how this message is so important that God doesn't show favoritism. In verse nine, he says this, James, Cephas, which is another name for Peter, James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and and they to the circumcised or to the Jewish people. Verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And then this is when when Paul gets in Peter's face for denying what Jesus called him to do in the first place. Verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. It's like he was like super cool with like, yeah, this gospel's for everyone, even those pagan Gentile people. But as soon as like all his Jewish homies show up into town, he's like distancing himself from that lunch table because he doesn't want to be associated with them. And Paul's like, oh no, no, no. And that's not how we see people. We actually see people the way the Heavenly Father does. We do not show favoritism. And this is imperative to, to remember, especially after the week like we've had, folks. This past week, we've had a chance to have some very, very strong opinions about some very important issues. I don't know if you've watched the news this past week, but you, if you have, you more than likely formed an opinion. And I'm, I'm sure that there's people in this room that were on one side or the other and, and, and possibly, as you were watching, regardless of what side of the uh, argument you were on, you got angry. And I know that I, that I got angry as, I, as I'm listening to it, like just the snippets of it. Like I'm getting super, super, super angry. And then I'd hear the other side, I'm getting super, super angry. And then I'm hearing the other side, I'm super, super angry. And, and in the equation, you have Judge Kavanaugh, you have Dr. Ford, you have Democrats, you have Republicans, and you've got the press. And there's enough to go around to cause people to form serious 
opinions and even to get angry. And there's nothing wrong with being angry. In fact, I think that as Christians, we should be angry about certain things. However, it's what we do with the anger. The scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. So how do we get to the point of sinning in our anger? It's when all of a sudden we stop talking about the issues and we start looking at the people who are the mouthpieces for these issues and we start to convert our disagreement with them or our disapproval of them and we convert that into animosity for them. We cease seeing them the way the Heavenly Father does. And you have people that with, with, for example, with Dr. Ford, who say she's absolutely credible, and other people say she's absolutely not. And then yet with, with Judge Kavanaugh, he's absolutely telling the truth. And other people, no, he's absolutely not. He's a predator. And you have people who are on opposite ends of that. And they're like, well, we don't know what the truth is. Well, we think that we do. And, and all of a sudden, people are like throwing their, their hat into the ring on, on who we should believe more. But let's do this. This is a complicated issue. But let's separate the complicated issue and let's make it a little bit easier. Let's make it easier with Rylan. This is Rylan McFadden. This is my third-born son. He is the first athletic McFadden in McFadden history. <laughs> So if you've ever been out there saying, is there any hope in the world? He's rocking a Gatorade like a boss. He just finished a cross-country meet right there. Super proud of him. Rylan is a great, great kid. But let's just say, hypothetically, that he grows up, and in his, in his early 20s, he does something. And it's not in question. He, he did it. Everybody knows that he did it. There's hard evidence. No one's like, well, I don't know if I should believe him. No, he did it. And what he did was horrible. And what he did hurt people, several people. And it's whatever he did, it was so bad and so illegal that he, justice is gonna fall hard on this kid, this 22-year-old kid, Rylan McFadden. And the, but not only that, it's in the public stratosphere in such a way that everyone has an opinion on it. There's people that are so angry. I say, see, this is the problem with society. That guy needs to be punished. Justice should come against him as hard as it can be. And there's some people that are like, you know what? He should get the, the strictest letter of the law. Like they, he should get the chair for this. Yeah, he doesn't even deserve to be on this planet one more day. He needs to be taken off the planet because whatever he did, this was so bad and so horrible that he should just not even, he doesn't deserve to live another day. And other people are like, no, that's too easy. He should be blocked away and suffer every second of the rest of his life, however long that is, remembering what he did. And I hope that he feels the hell that he caused my family every single day from here on out. And then there's me, his dad. What do I say? I'm with you that justice needs to come against my son. He did it. I know he did it. Whether that's jail time or, or worse, I know that justice must come to my son and I'm with you on that. But I'm not with you on the hate that you have towards him. That you want him to suffer. That you want him to feel the pain of what he's caused for the rest of his life. No, I can't, I can't join you in that. You know why? Because I was there when he was born. I remember when he first learned how to walk. I taught him how to ride a bicycle out in that parking lot right over there. You wanna know what I'm feeling towards my son? Pain. When he hurts people, it causes me pain. 
and it hurts me because I know that it's causing himself pain. You wanna know what I'm feeling? I'm feeling like I'm cheerleading for the turnaround, whether it's when he's behind bars or some other time. I'm praying and, and I'm wanting to turn around in his life where all of a sudden he stops hurting and he starts to help. And, and everything about him is going into being someone who's actually glorifying God with his life and not hurting people. That's what I'm cheerleading for. I'm cheerleading for his ultimate success in God in a turnaround moment. That's what I'm praying for. You don't wanna know why? Because I'm his dad. I'm his dad. How does God view Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh and the Democrats and the Republicans and the press? Do you know that God loves those you hate? God loves the people you hate. He loves them like a father who isn't ignoring the justice that should come. He's not like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Justice comes and no one sees that clearer than God. However, you also have a God the Father who's aiming at grace and mercy. He sees them like a father. I want to challenge you. If you want to be someone who's stepping into this burden and this doctrine of people, the people you hate most, practice looking at them through the lens of a father, a parent who's cheerleading the ultimate turnaround in this kid rather than just hoping that they suffer for what they've done. But one of Bob Goff's lines that I love the most is this, we are all rough drafts of the people we're still becoming. We are all rough drafts of the people we're still becoming. So cut yourself some slack, cut other people's slack. Don't ignore justice, but recognize these people are still works in pro progress and process. Thirdly, see other people who need your hope and boldly share it. Not, not only do we need to see the problem in ourselves, not only do we need to see other people the way the Heavenly Father does, but we also need to see other people who need your hope hope, and boldly share it. Uh, I want to challenge you with this, is that there's people in your world, and Paul talks about it all throughout this passage, especially in the beginning of chapter 2. He's like, this is my mission, to go out to the Gentiles. Like, I, I feel totally inadequate because I used to kill Christians, but now I'm a Christian, and I'm telling people about Jesus. I used to kill people for believing what I'm believing now and propagating to everyone else. But that's, that's my reality. I want to tell them. And I don't want to have any, like this person would never accept Jesus, so I'm not going to talk to them. I want to go to the hardest people, the most dyed-in-the-wool, anti-Jesus people I know, and share the hope that I have. Not all the answers to their questions. I don't have that. But I want to share the hope that I have. And you do too. In fact, I, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you just to, you know, make a corner or even just like a, make a mental note in your head. Who needs to be seen by you? Because you might, have, might just see this person as a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a parent or a spouse or, or, or someone who goes to your school or someone who you work with. And that's all you see them as. But God sees them differently. He sees them as his kids who are still lost that he wants to see come home. What if you saw them that way? What if you saw them and actually had the guts to boldly share the hope that you have? On the back, if you've got the, the, uh, the booklet, on the back of the notes, it contains like the original flyer that was mailed out. Look at the graphic design on that baby. <laughs> Attractive. Nothing says awesome like Helvetica. So Helvetica font is right here. And this is what it says. Yes, it's happening in Manuka. What? What's happening in Manuka? A meeting to introduce you to plans for the new Manuka Bible Church, which is now being formed non-denominational. Why? 
for the glory of God and the good of man. A number of people have expressed the desire for this kind of congregation in our growing community. When? July 25th, 1979, 7 p.m. Where? Manuka Junior High Cafeteria, South Door. Who? All concerned Christians who want to see God really do a work in Manuka and be a part of it. Man, I would love to see God do a work in Manuka and Shorewood and Morris and Braidwood and Wilmington and Plainfield. I would love to see God do a work. You know, one of the things that we're really praying about is seeing not our church just continue to get bigger, bigger, bigger here, but to start to have the burden that those two men had back in the day and say, what if, what if we want to send some people out to start a new community where we can actually see God continue seeing the burden that Dick Seavers and Vernon Johnson have? You know, one, one of the people that got this flyer was Joyce Satorius. If those guys didn't have the burden back in 1979 to start this church, Joyce wouldn't have heard. Joyce and Walt um, were not believers. They weren't Christians. And they got one of these flyers. And so they came. They were curious. Walt got, got led to the Lord by his, his boss. And Joyce got led to the Lord right here at Manuka Bible Church. And she became our office administrator from that day forward. <laughs> but my question is this. Who's the next Joyce? Who's the next Joyce? Who's the Joyce that's on the outside right now that doesn't know and hasn't been told that you just see as a person that you do life with, but they don't know the gospel? What if you reached out to the next Joyce? What if you had the burden and the vision that these men had where it's not all just about just consuming, but it's about giving? That you actually stepped into the burden that our church was founded on that doesn't just go back to 79, but goes back to the resurrection of Christ. May that be our burden in 2018. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you equip us with a vision that you have for this community, a vision that you have for our families, a vision that you have for our neighborhoods, a vision that you have for uh, the people that we hang out with at school, the people that we hang out on the weekend. God, we, we know people to be problematic, but we thank you for giving us a source on why. God, that you created us in your image and we're inherently valuable, but we are broken. But you gave us the hope. God, give us eyes to see those in our world that don't yet have this hope. Give us the courage just to speak up and share the hope that we have. Lord, I pray that this week we will be an active pursuit of seeing people differently. That God, perhaps, even in our own friend group, is the next choice. The one that doesn't know, doesn't believe, but then hears and does. And when we see this happening and happening and happening, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week.